You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. You can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Oh, you can. Yes, I In the musical oh, Annie yes, Get Your Gun, the duet is between a woman and a man. Two humans. But the updated version might have a silicon twist. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can be, I can be. Okay, we know computers can calculate and crunch data much faster than we may mortals, that's not news. But what about their taking on roles that, up to now, we figured absolutely required a human touch? Teachers, doctors... And other roles, literally. How long before a digital actor wins an Oscar? I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. It's Humans Need Not Apply on Are We Alone? Pilots, astronauts, drivers, journalists. Find out which of these jobs still require metabolizing protoplasm and those where human beings might be phased out. When I met with Clifford Nass, he was talking to his computer. Okay, and uh, here is the revised... Which isn't so unusual. A lot of us do that. But perhaps it's most fitting for a social psychologist who's written a book called The Man Who Lied to His Laptop. And there's a lot of information packed just into the title. The Man Who Lied to His Laptop. Well, it tells us that there's an interaction between the man and his laptop, but also because the man is lying to it, it's an emotional connection because we only tell lies to entities that perceive truth. Are we ready for perceptive emotional relationships with computers? Things move faster if you talk to the computer. No, I mostly talk to computers for my own benefit. You know, it's sort of a good way to think. Not only ready, we're primed for it. In a series of experiments, Dr. Nass discovered how intensely humans reacted to the voices of their automated navigation systems in their cars. Turns out our speech is packed with additional information beyond just the words, information about the speaker, and humans are hardwired to respond to it. One of the most amazing things about speech is how dense a communication medium it is. So it tells us what we call traits about ourselves, like our gender, our age, we can tell whether someone's young or old or middle-aged and quite, quite well. And then we can also detect states, their emotion, how they're feeling, how, whether they're focusing, paying attention or not, whether they're drowsy or not, etc. So it's an amazingly rich way of communicating. And our brains are built to detect all those things very, very rapidly and very, very powerfully. When we talk about machines, we often say, well, it's just a machine. But that's really not the way that we're feeling about our machines. And what sort of relationships are we developing with our machines? And are they crossing into an emotional realm? Well, 
essentially based on 20 years of research I've done in my lab and labs around the world have done, it's pretty clear that when we interact with technologies that have a voice, that interact with us, they use language, etc., the parts of our brain that are initiated are those associated with human-to-human -human interaction, not technology, the way we, let's say, interact with a toaster oven or a pen. So there seems to be pretty clear evidence that we're responding socially to these technologies. And by responding socially, it means bringing to bear the same rules, expectations, heuristics that we would bring when interacting with another person. So to that extent, we have just as rich a social interaction and expectations and behaviors towards technology as we do towards people. Well, let's look at some examples. And you did an experiment with computer voices in cars, which is a fascinating experiment. And I guess we could announce it something like this. All happy drivers are happy, but unhappy drivers are unhappy in their own particular way, <laughs> and the implication it has for computers. That's right. So please outline that fascinating experiment. Sure. Well, I love the way you presented that. Basically, what happens is we were interested in the question of as cars do more talking, they're already doing navigation, but there's more suggestions. They're suggesting restaurants, they're finding places of interest, they're telling you about your gas, they're telling you about all sorts of things. And that role is likely to grow over time. So the question is, what should the voice sound like? Now, it seems pretty obvious that if you have a happy driver, a happy voice would be appropriate. After all, people enjoy happy voices and encourages you to be happy, etc. But what should be the voice for a sad driver? Should it be happy on the grounds that the car should be happy to be driving, it's good to be happy, there are social norms that say it's better to be happy than sad? Or might we find that like with people, it's annoying for a car to say to you essentially, you know, let's turn that frown upside down or let's cheer up because when you're feeling down, the last thing you want is someone just to say, cheer up. So we did the study and in a car simulator where we had a number of drivers that we made happy or sad. And we then had the voice in the car, same voice, saying the exact same things, but either in a rather cheerful, upbeat voice. Hi, my name is Chris, and I will be your virtual passenger for today. A rather subdued, almost depressed voice. Hi, my name is Chris, and I'll be your virtual passenger for today. And what we found was for the happy drivers, not surprisingly, that first voice, which most people seem to really like, work better. But for the upset and sad drivers, it was that second, very depressed voice that most people find almost horrifyingly bad, turned out to not only lead to fewer accidents, but also lead to making the drivers happier, made them more engaged with the car, increased attention, etc. But the results were more than that. So not only did the sad people drive better hearing the sad voice that mimicked their own mood, but happy people did not drive well listening to that sad voice. That's right. It turns out that when we interact, and this is consistent with people-to-people -people interaction, when we interact with people whose emotion doesn't match ours, it adds what we call cognitive load. It makes us worry a lot about what that other person is thinking. Now, ironically, we know, of course, the car's emotion and the voice isn't worth thinking about. Yet our brains aren't built that way. Our brains aren't built to do that. So essentially, the, the correct saying is happy people like happy people, but misery loves miserable company. But how far are you going to take this? Because what if someone's angry. You don't want to mimic their anger with the car because also that's the last thing you want on the road. Well, it's a great question. In fact, we're doing a lot of research on how to help angry drivers. And one thing we know is studies we've just completed suggest that rather than talking about the emotion of an angry driver, the best thing to do is to short circuit the anger before it arises. So for example, if you have an angry driver and a car cuts them off, 
rather than saying to the driver, don't be angry, or let's play some soothing music, instead you do a strategy called cognitive reframing. And what you do is you change the way they think about that event from an anger-producing event to a more rational event. So an example would be if a car cuts you off, the car says, oh, that car actually has a bad side-view mirror, so he couldn't see you. Or, wow, that was great driving, avoiding that car. And this is something that the computer would say to you while you're driving? The voice in the car. The car's voice would say, because increasingly, cars have sensors. So cars know, for example, increasingly whether you're going to run into another car. So this whole idea of what they call automated cruise control, where it stops before you hit another car, or the ones that warn you as you try to change lanes. It says, don't do that. Those sensors right now are being used only as warning systems. But they could also be used to enhance the feeling of the driving experience. So are we talking about computers are getting to a point where they actually know us as personalities? And then do they also have personalities themselves? Well, the answer is that, in fact, one of the things I discuss in the book, The Man Who Lied to His Laptop, is precisely that, fortunately, personality and emotion are relatively simple. Even though we think of, oh my goodness, personality, everyone, so many aspects and dimensions and emotion, even more so. I mean, poets are paid tons of money to uncover all this stuff. But it turns out the way the brain is built, there's really only two fundamental dimensions of personality and two different but fundamental dimensions of emotion. Once you understand that, it means a few things. One, it means that computers can be, with very simple rules, extremely effective in dealing with other people. And secondly, it means that we can be extremely effective in dealing with other people, dealing with other people as well, simply because if you sort through all the messiness and just boil down to the two fundamental dimensions of each of those, you can really get extremely far. And we've shown that with studies with computers, and the studies seem to suggest that they'll also work extremely well with people. On the subject of cars still, the company BMW received a lot of complaint letters because of its navigation system. What did those complaint letters say? Well, some years ago when BMW came out with their 5 Series automobile and their navigation system in Germany, at the time it was probably the most sophisticated, smart, well-designed navigation system there was. However, drivers insisted on a product recall. And the reason was the voice in the car was female and German drivers wouldn't take directions from a woman. And it's quite lovely listening to some of the complaint calls when people would call customer service where they would call up and say, you know, my navigation system clearly doesn't work right. And they would say, why? And and the person would say, why? And they'd say, well, it's a woman. And the complaint person would calmly say, uh, sir, it's actually not an actual woman. It's merely the recording of a female voice. Female yeah. and male drivers were both annoyed, would not take direction from a, a female At this time, most of the drivers of the BMW 5 Series were male. So we don't know the reaction of females. It was really the male drivers, which again, at that point, were the vast majority of drivers of the car. But why? Because their brain said, this is a female giving directions. I have rules about that. And the rules are not okay. Well, although I'm laughing, although I did get lost on my way here to Stanford campus, even though I had directions, so I don't know. Maybe I've just reinforced the gender stereotypes. But what what strikes me about these voices that we're hearing is that they're still synthesized. I can tell that they're computers. So you're saying that as humans, we will still respond to speech, even if it's synthesized and not necessarily that of another human. That's right. Our brains are so exquisitely attuned to speech that, for example, when I play you speech backwards, so it obviously has no semantic meaning, your brain will still react as if it's speech. If I play you speech in a foreign language, your brain will react as if it were speech. So our brains, if it's even close to speech, 
our brains leap to the conclusion and must be speech. Evolutionarily, that makes a great deal of sense because throughout evolutionary history, there was nothing that sounded even close to a human with the possible exception of parrots, certain parrots that could, you know, mimic human speech. With the exception of that, nothing sounded even vaguely human. No animal sounds even the slightest bit human. So we very develop rather broad rules of if it sounds even the slightest bit human, it probably is a human, maybe through distortion of sound or through noise in the background or whatever, and that's what's going on. Clifford Nass directs the communication between humans and interactive media lab at Stanford University. We'll hear more from him later in the show. So it seems we respond to synthesized voices. But what about synthesized people? At Pixar Animation Studios, Chris Ford can see the future of animation. And he says, that future is here. Sophisticated computer animation software is more and more capable of rendering thoroughly realistic digital actors. To stupefying effect, consider the movies Avatar and Benjamin Button. An untrained eye, which certainly includes mine, couldn't distinguish between members of Hollywood's A-list and their silicon stand-ins. Avatar, of course, you've seen non-human actors that look extremely realistic. And we're also seeing in films like Benjamin Button the digital reconstruction of actors at different ages. For example, Brad Pitt, you see both in his old and his young versions. So to pull all those together, I would say you will see within the next two to three years, we will see full up, completely animated digital actors which are so realistic that you'll have difficulty in telling them apart from the real article. So what you're saying is that the technology is on track to reproduce the visual appearance of humans in films. But, you know, I was on a panel years ago with Roger Ebert, and we were discussing the possibility of synthetic actors or whatever you call them, and he just was not happy with that idea. I think it's because he felt that what they couldn't do is deliver a performance. What about that aspect of it? Well, classically, the way that digital actors are animated at present is through motion capture, and invariably an actor will wear some kind of spandex suit covered in markers of which the motion can be derived from surrounding cameras. And these, you know, sample at rates of hundreds of times a second, even thousands of times a second, and that data is used to drive the model. So we can actually achieve pretty good fidelity as far as the actual motion is concerned. Now, the e-motion, especially as related to facial animation, is just as challenging, and that also is pretty much addressable these days through the use of markers on the face and capture through traditional photographic means. What I think is really interesting is that now we're seeing the development of computer vision-based motion capture systems that don't even require markers on the face and can again capture at the same very high frame rates. So the technology to show the subtleties of human emotion sampled at a sufficient accuracy to be realistic is pretty much here already. All right, well then let's just take it to the final inevitable step, and that is that you know the software gets to the point where the actors have been replaced by, if you will, keyboard actors, people behind a computer, and they're directing the response of these synthetic characters, and you know, George Clooney has to get a job parking cars. Is that where it's going? Well, I have to admit that there are a lot of unemployed actors in L.A. They're currently waiting tables, but they're a lot cheaper than doing this digitally. Having said that, there are things that you might want to have your actor do that, frankly, they're not prepared to do. 
you know, you might want to blow them apart or have them fall off a cliff or be squashed between two big rigs. So that type of requirement can only be addressed by digital duplicates of the actors themselves. This is still expensive to do. It takes time to build and to rig a character and to make sure that the animation is as smooth as possible. But the cost of doing this is coming down very rapidly. The amount of processing power, though increasing, is being counterbalanced by the fact that multi-core computers and GPUs are making the performance of creating this material ever more efficient. And that's generally the bias at this stage. You know, even though this is complex work, it's getting faster and faster to do. And you're seeing this in the films now. Five years ago, you did not see any kind of digital human being whom you would think is truly real. In Benjamin Button, I bet some of you probably didn't realize that Brad Pitt wasn't even present in the movie for at least the first hour of that film. He was entirely digital. What about coming down the pike, say, 10, 20 years from now, this technology invading, as it were, our personal space? In other words, when we go online, that we have an avatar that doesn't look like an avatar anymore. It looks like us, behaves like us, maybe an improved version in some sense. This presumably will happen as well? Yes, and I've been talking about feature films at the moment because feature films are really driving this technology. But In parallel to feature films, we have game development, and game development is very focused on real-time interaction, on algorithms that give levels of intelligence and behavioral characteristics to these digital characters, these avatars, if you like. So we have two converging trajectories here, which will come together within this time frame to make fully simulated human beings. I have no doubt of that. So finally, it's been, what, less than 100 years since Mickey Mouse, hand-drawn with with ink on paper, to now uh, synthetic actors and so forth. Uh, You still upbeat about the future of movies? Totally. You just have to see a movie like Avatar to realize the degree of immersivity, if you like, that you can experience, how a whole world can be built, how characters can be built to populate that world. It will only get more and more sophisticated as we go forwards, especially because the cost of producing this and the amount of processing power needed to produce this is decreasing all the time. Chris Ford, thank you very much for being with me. If it really is you, who's with me? I believe I am, but I will check afterwards. Thank you. Great to be here, Seth. (laughs) The flesh and blood for now. Chris Ford is business director at Pixar Animation Studios. And the award goes to Gary Bott for his role as Terry Malloy in On the Waterfront Redux. I direct your attention to the screen. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. And now I am. Thank you. And thanks to my massively parallel Cray X-T5, its ultra-speed matrix manipulator, the X-7 facial animator. Coming up, breaking news. And first on the scene, your local newspaper reporter bot. Computers as journalists? Humans need not apply, but we hope they keep listening to Are We Alone? From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines And it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Are We Alone? 
where the hosts are still carbon-based, oxygen-breathing homo sapiens. Well, Seth, you're an astronomer, and a lot of astronomy is automated now. The telescopes scanning the skies, at least some of them, are run by computers. Is the job fully automated? Well, the telescopes are all automated, that's for sure, but the job is not. I mean, in terms of deciding what scientific questions to investigate and, and what the data collected by the telescopes actually means, how to interpret that, what is it telling us about the cosmos, that's still in the uh, realm of humans. So it looks like there are a lot of jobs that still require humans behind the wheel, at the helm, what have you. Yeah, such as, say, uh, journalism, Molly. (laughs) Right. I recognize the setup when I hear it, but come on, Seth, I've been a reporter for a long time, and it actually takes some judgment that a machine just doesn't have, but go ahead, say it anyway. Computers are doing journalism. No! Software produced by the company Narrative Science generates stories automatically. The company was started as a spinoff from work by Northwestern University Schools of Engineering and Journalism. And you know how the headline to this story reads? Are journalists really necessary? And the subhead? Reporter scooped by a computer. That's pretty good, Molly. There may be a place for you still in journalism. Christian Hammond is one of the founders of Narrative Science. Chris, how does the software at Narrative Science actually work? Well, Narrative Science is really all about taking raw numerical and textual data and generating absolutely brand-new, unique narratives. And the way it does it is fairly straightforward. We ingest the data. We have algorithms that will analyze the data and figure out what points are more or less interesting. So in a baseball game, for example, the winning run would be very interesting, and the system would identify that. And then once it's figured out what's more or less interesting, it has the notion from journalism of what we call an angle. And it will try to apply those angles to the story to give it some narrative structure, to give it some narrative shape. So what you're saying is that you feed into this piece of software statistics, for example, that are collected almost all the time, and it produces a narrative story. It produces a story you could run in the papers. It absolutely produces a story you could run in the papers. Uh, It'll produce the headline for the story as well. Well, why do this, Chris? I mean, journalism is under fire. The papers are having troubles. Why make it harder on the humans? Well, our goal here is not in any way, shape, or form to replace journalists, but to augment what is being written. In general, we have tended to write stories, for example, in women's college softball. And quite truthfully, there's almost no one writing stories about women's college softball except us. And there are a lot of underrepresented sports, actually underrepresented verticals in general, where we can take the data, uh, we can apply our analytics, we can apply our, our knowledge of journalism to create new stories that no one else is writing. So this isn't uh, replacing anybody, it's simply augmenting the coverage of uh, sports in this case. It's absolutely aimed at augmenting the coverage of sports. In fact, my personal goal with regard to this kind of technology is to at some point write a game story for every single Little League game that's played in this country. And no one else will ever do that. The obvious question, Chris, how good is the writing? The writing is, in fact, excellent. The important thing to understand is that there's not material written by engineers. We have on staff uh, a fairly large cadre of journalists who actually instruct the system on how to write different kinds of stories in different kinds of situations. And the writing includes not only about the game in the moment, but about the game, about the season, about comparisons between other teams uh, looking at individual players' highs and lows during the season, and has a great deal of context associated with it. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I don't know if you have uh, some samples of writing from narrative science uh, software 
there. If you do, could you read me a couple of lines? Um, or, or maybe if you have a, you know, a couple of lines written by an actual human and written by your software, we could see if I could tell which I, was I which. I never look at anything written by humans anymore. <laughs> um, but I, I'll, I'll give you a couple of lines from a Minnesota basketball story. Actually, I'm going to start in the middle. Minnesota went into the locker room with the momentum and came out of the second half flying as well. Leading 32-31 to 31 late in the first half, the Golden Gophers used a 20-5 to 5 spurt to open their cushion to 16 points with 16 minutes and 4 seconds remaining. Okay, when that sounds like it uh, is written by a sports writer, was that written by the software? It was the software. All right. Well, you've obviously taught it uh, how to write sports stories. Uh, I take it that the software is continually being improved. Uh, you have... You know, you look it over and you fix those things that just don't sound right. We do a fair amount of editorial massaging of the system, not of the individual stories, but of the system uh, before stories go out. And then as the season progresses and the system knows more and more and more about what's been happening that season, it can add more and more context to the stories themselves. What's important here, though, is that we're not talking about just sports. So the system actually is looking at stories in real estate, financial stories, stories that are descriptions of what's going on in different cities, uh, stories talking about educational opportunities. So anytime there is a corpus of data where there is narrative in that data, we're going to be looking at how to bring that narrative out, how to give it voice. How far could you go with this? I mean, could we write movie scripts? A lot of them are formulaic, too. Well, I think movie scripts, maybe not, although maybe. But our focus right now tends to be in places where there really is data with stories hidden in the data. As each day goes by, more and more data is coming online. You know, as time proceeds, we're going to be hitting on other domains as well as other sports and creating, you know, more and more narratives. All right. Well, Chris Hammond, I want to thank you for talking to us about how to turn uh, dry statistics into juicy narratives. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Oh, this has been lovely. Thank you. Christian Hammond is one of the founders of Narrative Science. My name is Jim Benikoff, and I don't think that computers can teach people how to create aesthetic works of art in the way that humans can. It seems there are some pockets of activity where human judgment and creativity are still needed. James Benikoff is professor of music theory at Baylor University in Texas. Computer can teach things that have to do with rules. If we think about grammar, of course, a computer can do spell checking and grammar checking. And similarly, in music composition, a computer can tell you whether you've broken certain basic rules of writing, perhaps in the style of Bach. But I don't think that that's where the aesthetic value lies. Uh, adhering to those rules tends to be the way that we make sure that we're not making mistakes, not the way that we say something meaningful in a work of art. So the idea of that art, whether through writing or through music, comes by breaking the rules. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say breaking rules as much as using the rules as a basic premise might sometimes break the rules, but in other cases it's really what you do once you get past the rules. If you think of a great novel or something like that, grammar may be used entirely properly throughout the novel, but the things that are meaningful to us in the novel aren't the fact that the grammar has been used properly. It's the themes that are treated. But Jim, do computers teach writing or teach music today? There are a lot of different ways that computers can do that, whether it's in the realm of performance or very simple composition, as I was saying. You could write a simple compositional exercise, say, in the style of Bach or Palestrina, and feed it into a computer, and the computer could tell you whether you had 
done things that Bach or Palestrina would not have done would be therefore regarded as incorrect. So they can teach in that sense. So you don't think that things that are beautiful, whether it's a piece of writing or a piece of music, can be boiled down to an algorithm and then taught by a computer to to students, and I'm including beauty and harmony and whatever might be moving. Maybe there's a formula for all of that. Maybe there is. I don't. I haven't seen it yet. I think that one of the things that is compelling to us, though, about works of art that move us is that there is a sense of something different, something we haven't seen before. It's not necessarily just novelty or bizarreness for its own sake, but it's something where we would say, I haven't ever seen anything like that, or I haven't ever heard anything like that, but in some sense, it's it's true. Jim Benikoff, thank you very much for talking to us. You're most welcome. James Benikoff is Vice Provost for Academic Affairs and Professor of Music Theory at Baylor University in Texas. But he's not the only one resisting composition by C++. Let's begin up in the air. My name is Kathy Abbott, and I am the Chief Scientific and Technical Advisor for Flight Deck Human Factors at the Federal Aviation Administration. And I think that we are not at the point where computers will be able to replace pilots anytime soon. Kathy, you don't think that uh, my next flight out of San Francisco Airport is likely to have a whole bunch of hardware in the cockpit as opposed to protoplasmic pilots. Why is that? The pilots will certainly be there, but the computers are also there because the computers are designed to help the pilots conduct the flight, and they're very useful for that purpose. But at this point, we rely on the pilots for mitigating risk to handle situations for which the systems were not designed, and that happens on a fairly regular basis. Well, if someone asked me, could you build, for example, a city bus that didn't have the bus driver? I could understand that that might be very hard to do. I mean, you could build some sort of robotic device that would drive the bus from one stop to the next. But on the other hand, if somebody runs in front of the bus or there's a dog or whatever, I mean, those are all things that are very hard to automate away. But up in the air at 30,000 feet, you don't have that problem with dogs running across your path. You, you know what's up there. There are other aircraft. There are other machines. So, you know, looking out maybe 10, 20 years, do you think this situation will change? Will we ever see unpiloted commercial aircraft? I think it's a little soon to tell when that might be feasible because it's both technical and a social issue. The technical issues have to be overcome. We don't have the level of safety in these aircraft without pilots in them that we would be comfortable with. You mentioned the bus. You're right that there's not dogs running in front of airplanes, but we do have birds. And also you have to remember airplanes are operating in three-dimensional space in a way that uh, buses don't. What you're asking if you're going to try and do that kind of automation using computers is you're asking the design engineers to predict in advance all the possible situations that the airplane would encounter. And that is a very complex thing to do. All right. Well, Kathy Abbott, thank you so much for talking to me. I I feel better about the fact that I have to get on an airplane in 48 hours, that there's likely to be somebody at the front end who's wearing a cap and has epaulets on their shoulders. Thank you. I am Dr. Eric Vandegraaff. And I believe that computers will never be able to replace doctors. A computer would probably be better at reaching a diagnosis in a complicated case, or at least offering the statistically most likely diagnosis. But when it comes to actually treating the patient and dealing with factors that we don't anticipate, this is where the human really needs to come in. 20 years ago, when I was in medical school, we had this great program, and I forget the name of it, but it had a database of all the patients that had come through our medical system for the course of about 
10 years. And what it did is the technicians had entered the ultimate diagnosis, had entered all the tests that each patient had had done and the results, as well as the presenting symptoms. And so this database basically summarized the collective experience of hundreds of doctors over the course of over 10 years. And this program was amazing at being able to come up with the most likely diagnosis for a specific problem. And mind you, this was 20 years ago. Now, I don't know what we have today, but I imagine that systems would be even better at this today than they had been in the past. The real issue with doctors, however, I think is a different issue, not just coming up with a diagnosis. But I think the real issue comes down to how you handle the diagnosis and how you handle the complications of treatment and the subtleties of treatment. I wonder if you could give me a specific example, because in tests that they've done where computers talk to humans, humans will talk back to them and respond to them as though they were human. So what is it specifically that a human could provide in this medical setting? Now, we're not talking about robotic surgery, but what is it that a human could provide that a computer can't? Yeah, I'll give you an example that a patient I just saw today. Uh, this is a patient that came in with pain in his legs, clearly due to what we call claudication or blockage in the arteries. He has no insurance. He would like me to treat him, but is unwilling to have further testing. What he wanted was some medication that would help take care of the discomfort. And uh, as I spoke to him further, I found that he was a smoker. He had diabetes that was not under good control. Now, a computer in that situation would reach the conclusion, well, there is a medication that we can use that helps the blood flow a little bit better through blockages we can't fix. So that would be the choice of therapy for him. But the real therapy for him was something different, and that's when I stopped the interview. I said, all right, here's, here's the real story. The real story with you is you've got to change your attitude. You've got to change your lifestyle. You've got to stop smoking. And if you don't stop smoking, this is what's going to happen to you. The pain in the legs is the least of your problems. He responded to that, and, and I think that wasn't because, you know, he's a smoker, and so therefore I have to give him my standard smoking lecture. It was because I could sense that what he really wanted was something more. He wanted me not to go in and do an invasive test. He wanted me not to do surgery. What he wanted was an answer where he could help himself without that. And it sounds like you're, what you said, that he, he wanted someone to listen to him and to respond to him as a human, and isn't it true that many patients come in and it doesn't I'm not saying that they don't have serious problems, but having someone pay attention to them if they may be lonely or maybe haven't had a chance to talk to someone um, can do wonders towards their improvement. So the, oh, question, sure. so the question is, could a machine fulfill that role? A sophisticated enough machine, I, I, would, I would have to imagine, could fulfill that role. And so everything that I say what a doctor is needed for, I suspect as computers and robots become more sophisticated. Yeah, I imagine at some point they could take over that. At this point, I can't imagine how that would happen, though. It would have to be a system that, that has the ability to recognize that there are a lot of variabilities, not just with human physiology, but with human emotions and how people react, how they react differently today than they will next week, how to be able to sense what people are really saying in between the lines of what they're actually telling what if you found out that I was a computer conducting this interview? <laughs> I'd say they finally came up with a nice voice for a computer. <laughs> Eric Vandegraaff, thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Kathy Abbott is with the Federal Aviation Administration, and Eric Vandegraaff is a cardiologist at Allegiant Health in Nebraska. Molly, that was a nice compliment about your voice. Right, but is it my voice, or is it artificially manipulated with an Eventide Ultra Harmonizer 4000 synthesizer from my real voice? 
just because the computer can do the job, should it? What do we lose if we put a robot at the helm? <laughs> I think I strained my throat there. Well, an astronaut's view of Earth, for one, next on Are We Alone? Just because computers can do some things as well as humans and not insist on coffee breaks, does that mean we should outsource our jobs to these mindless machines? Some jobs incorporate profound human experience, experience that helps define, well, what it means to be human. This comes up in the intense debates over whether NASA's manned space program should continue at the present level, for example, because it's argued that a robot can explore the cosmos more effectively, more economically. But that's not the only thing we value about going into space. After all, can a robot give us an astronaut's view 220 miles above the Earth? The view of the Earth is just incredibly beautiful, almost mesmerizing, so that you have to tear yourself away from the windows. Uh, near the end of my last spacewalk on the space station, I had a couple of minutes, so I allowed myself the luxury of just pivoting around the front end of the space station with one arm on a handrail and scanning the horizon a thousand miles out, up above black space, these golden wings of the solar panels, down below the beautiful azure blue of the ocean, past my boots 200 miles, and the beauty of the blue and white earth below and this black sky in contrast just uh, made tears come to my eyes. Tom Jones is a U.S. astronaut, and four times he's taken a trip that few humans ever make into space. An astronaut's job is not just sightseeing, obviously. It's a lot of work, intense dedication, and training. And maybe that's the point. I was a NASA astronaut for 11 years and uh, lived at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Went on four space shuttle missions during the heyday of the shuttle program. And the last one was a trip to the International Space Station to do the assembly of the U.S. Destiny Laboratory. And I got to do three spacewalks on that mission to help put the space station together. How did you get into this line of work? I grew up during the space race back in the 1960s and wanted to be like the guys who were flying the Gemini and Apollo missions. And I thought that flying, which is what astronauts did back in the 60s, you had to be a test pilot, was a great career to work your way towards space. So I went into the Air Force. I was a bomber pilot in the Air Force and then went back to school, became a scientist, planetary scientist, studying asteroids and comets. And while I was working in that field is when I got picked up by NASA as a shuttle mission specialist. I know you get asked this all the time, but can you describe for me what it's like, uh, you know, after they're counting down 10, 9, 8, Mm. you're just sitting there uh, atop all this uh, highly flammable material. You're about to have, you know, your skin pulled away from your nose. Can you describe that for me? It's a great feeling of anticipation, and there's not a fear of the physical consequences of a failure of the rocket or the space shuttle. Uh, That's gone through your mind all during the simulations. Uh, I think everybody who climbs into the rocket has actually dealt with that mentally many years before. That decision's been made many years before. And so the anxiety is not from the physical process of being launched into space. It's from the challenge of undertaking the mission. And you realize that with liftoff, your professional reputation is on the line. Will you perform when you get to space in this strange environment with a very demanding timeline and a number of almost seemingly insuperable obstacles to overcome to achieve success? What are the greatest challenges? Are they just the physical ones of actually, you know, floating around in a very awkward uh, 
outfit, those, those spacesuits, and, you know, trying to wrench out some piece of equipment or change a board somewhere? I mean, is it just the physical demands or is it uh, having to deal with unforeseen circumstances? It's a mental challenge? It's a combination of both, but certainly the mental challenge is the biggest one because in any space flight, even on the six-month trips aboard the space station that my colleagues do, uh, you have to stay focused on the mission goals for that intense period of working in space. And so can you sustain that kind of mental focus? It's far more intense than anything I've gone through on the ground in terms of final exams or qualifying exams in front of an academic panel. Uh, It is really demanding, and you're working flat out at your utmost mental capacity because you don't want to make any mistakes. I do need to ask you this one because a lot of people will say, you know, it's been a long time since we've been to the moon. And since then, we've been doing these orbital flights. And uh, we see the astronauts juggling their food in zero-G and smiling at the camera. But those are my tax dollars. And and what's the benefit to me? How do you answer those people? The purpose of having humans in space is to bring their special skills, uh, their experience, their ability to use their brains, their eyes, their hands together to accomplish a very difficult task. Uh, If you've got a robot that can do that, that's fine. I think that when we come down to the fundamental questions that have to be answered in exploring the solar system, you know, is there life on Mars? Has there ever been life on Mars? Are there resources on the moon and the nearby asteroids that we can tap into and use in a practical way to lower the cost of future exploration or to to catalyze industry? The, The answers to those questions are unlikely to come from robotic exploration anytime soon, certainly in what we would call a normal human lifetime or expectation. Uh, Robots are getting better, but if you want to wait for a century to find out whether there was ever life on Mars, well, we can go the robotic route. I think if we want to find out in the course of a scientist's career or in the course of our own lives, then we have to send those talents out there. So on the space station, we're using the free fall environment to tap into fundamental discoveries in material science or physics. Uh, For example, the new alphamagnetic spectrometer headed up there this coming winter is going to look at the origins of dark matter and where dark energy is present and can we measure it and quantify it and understand it in some way. So some fundamental physics investigations as well as using the space station as a stepping stone, a test bed for the systems that we need to go to the moon or to the nearby asteroids or eventually to Mars. And I think the benefit to us all is the formation of a human presence in space that will allow us to develop industry, where we have space resources being used to generate products that are of value on the ground, maybe even beaming back energy from the sun to the earth, and fundamentally changing the way we live here. And so it's an investment in an economy that's not only earth-based, but space-based. Finally, Tom, having gone into space four times, I mean, that you know, uh, you're not going into space now. Would you want to? Do you miss this? I do miss it. I dream about it on a regular basis, <laughs> and maybe that's because I miss it so much. Uh, I can't fly in space anymore. I'm saving up to go as a tourist one day, but uh, I do live vicariously through my colleagues' adventures. I still see them fly on the shuttle in the station, and I can identify with their challenges and their difficulties and their joys, and I think that's how I can be at peace with not flying in space myself. And to be honest, the training investment and the time away from your family in getting ready for these trips is very demanding and it's not an easy sacrifice for your family to make to get ready for these trips. So there comes a time in every astronaut's life when they have to put that activity aside and really step into the next challenge. So I found that I'd had my opportunities more than most people get and I'm very happy that uh, I could then devote more time to my family and other challenges. And now I'm working on, for example, exploring the nearby asteroids with robots. Terrific. Tom Jones, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome.
Tom Jones is an astronaut and space consultant. At this point, we've learned that our relationship with computers is, if nothing else, complex. We rely on them, love them, hate them, regard them as the opposition, our replacements, and perhaps one day, our equals. It's subtle and complicated, much the way human relationships are, although actually not as complicated as human relationships as Clifford Nass, who we heard from earlier. And because of that, as our silicon sidekicks become more a part of our lives, they will, paradoxically, teach us something about what it means to be human. Dr. Nass is a social psychologist working with computers now, but Molly asked him about his previous career. You were a professional magician, as I understand. I believe that's, that's how right. you put yourself through college. That's right. Is there a parallel here? And now I won't use the word fooling, although it comes to mind, but by leading people down one path with a few suggestive strokes into believing something that perhaps isn't entirely what it seems. Do you think your previous career as a magician has led into the career you have now? Well, I wouldn't emphasize, it has, but I wouldn't emphasize the deception aspect. The The aspect I would emphasize is it takes very little to get people to go very far. <laughs> and that's really the idea of magic. You give them a few hints of what's happening and their brain will fill in a thousand details. And then as a magician, we say, ha now that you're filling in all those details, I can do things you wouldn't have noticed. Similarly with people, I mean, the sort of minimal amount of things we need to do to make people feel powerfully social is quite remarkable. Magic is not about the details. It's exactly the opposite. It's about painting the outline and letting people throw in all the details. And the same thing is true here. Our brains love to fill in the details. And the downside of that is when we get so excited about the details, we can't figure out the social rules. I mean, when I wrote my new book, I was shocked at how few social rules I and other people knew. And the reason was is because when we live life, any life situation you want to learn from, thousands of things happen, tens of thousands of things. And to try to extract out what was really important and really unimportant, I, I tried that when I uh, first dated. The first person I dated, I dated her a few times, and then she broke off with me. And I said, you know, it's okay, you can break off with me, but I'd really like you to tell me what I did wrong. You know, of all the things I did, which exactly were the ones I should learn from and what mistakes, it, it didn't go well. <laughs> she, she, she got very angry and stormed away. But there was something right about that. How do we figure it out? And ironically, it may turn out that careful experimentation with technologies, oddly enough, may be the very best way to uncover the most powerful, fundamental, and basic social rules. And so that's the premise. Well, there's a huge gulf between what one intends and what the other person interprets. And this repeats itself through social interactions all the time. And I'm actually convinced that many problems stem from that misinterpretation between what someone meant to do and where their state of mind was and what the other person assumed was actually going on. Well, I think it's extremely, you know, being human is really hard. It's incredibly hard work. I mean, just even the simplest social interactions are just overwhelming if you really try to understand them. So I think what happens is, what do we do when we're overwhelmed? We go for the simplest option. So the simplest option is, everybody must be exactly like me. And since I know about me, I'm fine. So very often you'll have people say things, and you'll be like, what the heck are you talking about? And of course the answer is, if you were inside their brain, it would make perfect sense. 
But it still suggests a sort of pessimistic future for our interaction with computers. If we really want them to know us and, and we're going to get to know them and we're going to have conversations with our computer. You were talking to your computer when I came in. Right. Uh, but because human relationships are so complicated, what do you really see as the future as our relationship with computers? And one of the big tests for AI, for example, is the human cannot distinguish between a computer and another human. And now with everything you've said, I'm thinking that that day will not come. Well, I actually look at it, I think it's an excellent insight, but I actually look at it the other way. So the answer is, will a computer ever be as good as the very, very, very most skillful people who know you the best? No. On the other hand, could a computer be much better than most people who know you most of the time? The answer is absolutely yes, because most people aren't very good at this and can really manage and navigate all these things. So I'd say the answer is, we may not have our very, very best interactions with computers that'll still likely be reserved for people, but I think our average computer interaction will be much better than our average person interaction. Now, I say that with regret. I, I like people. I like people more than technology as a species, and I, I think people are swell. But if you ask me, on the other hand, on average, am I more likely to get a satisfactory interaction on any dimension you name from a person or a computer? On average, it's going to be the computer, and it's going to get ever better. That, that's a pretty profound statement about... Yeah, that. pretty scary. <laughs> pretty, because what it says is it says what computers are good at, again, like magician and other things, is to focusing on the really fundamental big differences. Whereas many people, most people, most of the time, get bogged down in the little details. Plus, of course, you know, humans don't have the same ability to remember things and stuff. So, for example, um, when I go to get coffee, I go to the same person every day just by virtue of location. And, you know, that person remembers me sort of, but probably doesn't remember my name. That's okay. But a computer could easily do that. A computer could easily remember much more about me than that person can and, frankly, say more things. A computer could probably do a better emotion detection than that person can. So, ironically, a computer could probably provide a much better, on almost any criteria you name, interaction than a person. Well, what about love? Well, so that's why I said earlier it's the most important things that probably – it's the very specialist, the most special relationships we have that the computer won't replace. But what I'm saying is the vast, vast majority of human interactions are pretty pathetic and denuded, even among, you know, workers, etc. So the truth is, you know, could a computer be a better boss than a regular person? For the most part, yeah. Now, that's because we don't have to have truly special relationships with our boss. Now, if you're talking, on the other hand, could a computer achieve the most intimate relationships? No. That's fine. I'm glad. I mean, it's nice to have people good for something. I think that's swell. But um, the answer is what it does is it really says that it really ups the ante and says if you really want to be have a great person relationship, you know, really special relationship, it's going to take a lot of work. And you've got to beat a computer. And that's okay. I'm confident humans can do it. But average interactions, no, I don't think they can. Clifford Nass, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure. Really fun. Clifford Nass is a social psychologist at Stanford University, where he directs the communication between humans and interactive media lab. And that's it for our program. Thanks to the humanoid help from Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, 
and the SETI Institute. If you want to comment on the program, chew us out, chew us up, or just sound off, please visit Are We a Blog on our website or our Facebook page.